Lamentations chapter 4 How the gold has grown dim! How the pure gold is changed! The holy stones lie scattered at the head of every street. The precious sons of Zion, worth their weight in fine gold, how they are regarded as earthen pots, the work of a potter's hands. Even jackals offer the breast. They nurse their young, but the daughter of my people has become cruel. Like the ostriches in the wilderness, the tongue of the nursing infant sticks to the roof of its mouth for thirst. The children beg for food, but no one gives to them. Those who once feasted on delicacies perish in the streets. Those who are brought up in purple embrace ash heaps. For the chastisement of the daughter of my people has been greater than the punishment of Sodom, which was overthrown in a moment, and no hands were wrung for her. Her princes were purer than snow, whiter than milk, their bodies were more ruddy than coral. The beauty of their form was like sapphire. Now their face is blacker than soot. They are not recognized in the streets. Their skin has shriveled on their bones. It has become as dry as wood. Happier were the victims of the sword than the victims of hunger, who wasted away, pierced by lack of the fruits of the field. The hands of the compassionate women have boiled their own children. They have become their food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. The Lord gave full vent to his wrath. He poured out his hot anger, and he kindled a fire in Zion that consumed its foundations. The kings of the earth did not believe, nor any of the inhabitants of the world, that foe or enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem. This was the sins of her prophets, and the iniquities of her priests who shed in the midst of her the blood of the righteous. They wandered blind through the streets. They were so defiled with blood that no one was able to touch their garments. Away! Unclean! People cried at them. Away! Away! Do not touch! So they became fugitives and wanderers. People said among the nations, They shall stay with us no longer. The Lord himself has scattered them. He will regard them no more. No honor has shown to the priests. No favor to the elders. Our eyes are failed ever watching vainly for help. In our watching we watched for a nation that could not save. They dogged our steps so that we could not walk in our streets. Our end drew near. Our days were numbered, for one end had come. Our pursuers were swifter than the eagles in the heavens. They chased us on the mountains. They lay in wait for us in the wilderness. The breath of our nostrils, the Lord's anointed, was captured in their pits, or whom we said, under his shadow we shall live among the nations. Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, you who dwell in the land of Uz. But to you also the cup shall pass. You shall become drug and shrimp yourself bare. The punishment of iniquity, O daughter of Zion, is accomplished. He will keep you in exile no longer. But iniquity, O daughter of Edom, he will punish. He will uncover your sins. Well, good morning, church. Uh, my name is Cameron Purse. I'm the Young Adults Pastor here at Canterbury Gardens, and it's a privilege to be able to be with you this morning uh, to continue our short series in the Book of Lamentations. Now, I hope that this has been an encouraging 
series for you uh, during this uh, interesting season that we're in. It's definitely been a confronting book, uh, but I think it's confronting in a good way. It helps us to get a more full picture of who God is, and that's always a good thing. Now, as always, I would like to encourage you uh, to make sure that you have God's Word in front of you. We're going to be following following along quite closely with the text today. So make sure you have the Word of God in front of you so that you can track with where we're going today. Before we get into it, I'm just going to pray for us and invite you to pray uh, with me now. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for uh, this opportunity to be in your word together. Lord, it's such a, a good thing that we get to do as a church to hear your word spoken to us. And so, Father, we just pray now as we, yeah, as we, as we hear from your word that your Holy Spirit will be uh, working in our hearts, Lord, helping us to honestly examine our hearts and honestly um, to see where we're at with you, Lord. I just pray ultimately that, um, yeah, this message will uh, lead to change in our hearts. Uh, Lord, help us now, help us to, to see Christ uh, more beautifully and to, um, yeah, to change the result of this. So, Lord, we just commit this time to you uh, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, just as a reminder to where we have been so far and the context behind this book of Lamentations, we know that this is at the lowest moment of the nation of Israel's history. They have just been exiled from their own land, their city has been destroyed, and many of their people have died as a result of the Babylon army coming against the city, setting up a siege and destroying it. It's the lowest point of Israel's history, and we've seen that reflected in our journey so far. In When Andy spoke in, in uh, our first week together, he focused on chapter 1 and 2, and in chapter 1 we had this a raw picture of, of lamenting over the state of the city and what's happened to this great city. And then in chapter two, we, we saw that there was, that this was actually brought about by God. God had brought this about and there was a time of mourning and lamenting over the suffering that was taking place. And then last week in chapter three, we saw the cries of an individual, an individual on behalf of the nation crying out in the first half of that chapter that God ultimately was a God of wrath who had brought about this upon his people. But also in the midst of that, at the same time, he is a God of hope. And we saw some of the most amazing verses in the Bible last week that even though judgment had come, God's mercy and steadfast love continued. It was new every morning. And now we reach chapter Four. And if you thought after the highs of last week that things were just going to get better and better, well, you couldn't be much more wrong. Chapter 4, we're going downhill again, pretty steeply. In chapter 4, ultimately, we're going to see what was behind this terrible disaster that came upon Israel. We're going to ultimately see what caused this to happen in the nation. And really, we're going to see that this all came about because of sin, because of Israel's own sin, because of the idolatry of the people. 
And so today we're going to take a closer look at that sin. We're going to take a closer look at sin in general. And we have three quick points to go to. Firstly, we're going to look at the destructiveness of sin. Secondly, we're going to look at the deceitfulness of sin. And third and finally, that that, that despite these things, we're going to look at the restoration from sin. So why don't we get into this passage now? We won't look at all the verses. We've already heard it all read out. I'm just going to pick out a few key verses um, in this section. And really what we're going to see in this first first half is that there is this comparison going on between what Israel were and what they've become now. And so I'm going to read that out to us. Let's just look at a couple of verses. Now, I'm reading from the NLT version this time because I think it really reads the poetry well. So NLT version. Let's look at verse 1 and 2 first. Here's what it says. How the gold has lost its luster. Even the finest gold has become dull. The sacred gemstones lie scattered in the streets. See how the precious children of Jerusalem, worth their weight in fine gold, are now treated like pots of clay made by a common potter. Jump down to verse 5 of chapter 4. Look at what it says. The people who once ate the richest foods now beg in the street for anything they can get. Those who once wore the finest clothes now search the garbage dumps for food. Our princes once glowed with health, brighter than snow, whiter than milk. Their faces were as ruddy as rubies, their appearance like fine jewels. But now their faces are blacker than soot. No one recognizes them in the streets. Their skin sticks to their bones. It is as dry and hard as wood. So you can see here in these verses that there is this comparison going on between what Israel were like before this judgment came upon them, and what Israel are now. We see that they wore fine clothing, but now they're literally, I love how it says, searching in the dumps for food, just trying to find whatever scraps they could. Their skin sticks to their bones, and their faces are blacker than soot. We get this vivid picture of a people who were used to comfort and having all that they needed, and now they've become a dirty, desperate people just looking to survive each day. This gives us a raw picture of Israel's circumstances. That all that they could do was to look back and to see how far they had fallen. To be ashamed that they had come to this place because of their own sin. But you see, this only doesn't give us an insight into Israel's circumstances. It also gives us an insight into a truth that has been true since the beginning of time. And that is that sin causes destruction. That sin causes chaos. And that brings us to our first point, the destructiveness of sin. You see, this is what sin does. The Bible talks about the wages of sin being death. 
You see, sin always leads to destruction. And for Israel, they'd been sliding down this scale of sin for many hundreds of years. They had a few spurts and moments of repentance, but ultimately they kept sliding down this scale, going further and further in a downward trajectory in sin. But I want to actually jump to another text here to to give us really a description of what sin is, because I think it's easy for us to get confused about what sin is. And in Jeremiah, which was actually a book written around the same time as Lamentations, under the same circumstances, writing to the exiled people, in chapter 2 we get this amazing description, my favorite description of what sin is in the Bible, because it's so clear. Listen to this from Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13. If you have Bibles with you, please turn there. Jeremiah 2.13 says this about Israel's sins. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Do you see that? Did you see what that verse has to say about why sin is so destructive? That sin is so destructive because it is turning away from the source of life, from the source of all that is good, from the fountain of living water, the only one who can truly satisfy the desires of our hearts, the ones that we were, the one that we were created to be with. It's turning away from God and turning to broken cisterns, turning to things that can never satisfy our hearts, turning to the very opposite of all that God is, turning to death rather than life, to darkness rather than light, and ultimately to destruction. You see, this is why sin is so destructive. It's in its very nature because it is the opposite of all that God is. And we can see in these verses in Lamentations, back in Lamentations chapter 4, the devastation that it caused Israel, that all they could do is simply look back and mourn, that they were, had come so far, they had fallen so far, but that's what sin does. And you know what? The same is true for us today. The people of Israel didn't know it, but this was their inevitable conclusion for them. And we see this all throughout the world, right? When a nation gives itself over to sin, it goes on a path of self-destruction. Let these verses be a reminder to us, church, that we cannot play around with sin. We all need to be reminded that we cannot take sin lightly. And please, church, and I say this to myself, it's been a reminder for me all this week, don't be foolish enough to believe the lie that it won't end this way for you, that your sin is different, that you have it under control. It's not true. Sin always brings destruction because it's turning away from that which is life. It's turning away from God himself and running after things other than him. 
Let this be a reminder to us that perhaps this new season that we're in now, this lockdown season, has presented new temptations for you in your life. Perhaps there's new opportunities for you to compromise and and it's been difficult to deal with and you're tempted to give in to those things. Let this text be a reminder of the destructiveness of sin. That's in its very nature because it's the opposite of all that God is. And so be on guard, church. Be on guard against this. All right, let's keep moving through this passage. So we've just seen this comparison going on between where Israel were and now where they've come to. But the text is actually going to shift a little bit now and it's going to give the exact reason for why this has happened, why Israel have fallen so far. Look at verse 13 to 15. Here's what it says. Yet it happened because of the sins of her prophets and the sins of her priests who defiled the city by shedding innocent blood. They wandered blindly through the streets, so defiled by blood that no one dared touch them. Get away, the people shouted at them. You're defiled, don't touch us. So they fled to distant lands and wandered among foreign nations, but none would let them stay. And so very clearly here in this passage, it states why this came about from Israel, that it was because of sin. And while here it specifically highlights the sins of the prophets and the priests as leaders of the people, as representatives of the people, we know from the rest of the book of Lamentations, and even this very chapter in verse 4, it says that the guilt of my people is greater than Sodom and Gomorrah. We know that the whole people were guilty of sin. It was not just the leaders. But what I want to see us to see here is that despite how clear it is to Israel now, and we see that in this book, right? They know this has been brought about because of their sin. They know that this is judgment against them. Despite how clear it is now, at the time, it was not clear. This judgment came as a surprise to the people of Israel, despite God's constant warnings and the prophets that he sent them. And so we need to ask ourselves the question, why? Why did they not see this coming? Well, I think the answer to that question is because sin is not only destructive, but sin is also deceitful. It blinds us. It tricks us. And that brings us to point two, the deceitfulness of sin. And you see, what this passage is going to do now is it's going to give us some insight into the mindset of Israel, the things that they were focused on at the time of this judgment. We're going to see in a couple of different ways some clues to the sinfulness of their own hearts. And so why don't we look at that together? Firstly, looking at verse 12. We read this, not a king in all the earth, no one in all the world would have believed that an enemy could march through the gates of Jerusalem. So we see here already that there was this deep-seated belief in the people 
And not only the people, even those outside of Israel believed that no one could penetrate the walls of Jerusalem, that no one could get through their gates. And, and ultimately we see here, and we see it elsewhere in the Bible, that, that the, the Jews had a confidence in their own city, a confidence in their own might and their own strength and, and their own walls. And so we get a clue here in this text that, that they were trusting in their own power, their own might, ultimately trusting in themselves. But then there's more. Look at verse 17. Verse 17 says this, We looked in vain for our allies. <clears throat> we looked in vain for our allies to come and save us. But we were looking to nations that could not help us. So we see here that not only were Israel being dependent upon themselves, they, they were actually also looking to other nations for their protection. And, and time and time again, we see this throughout the Bible, that God kept rebuking his people for making treaties with nations that they were never supposed to. They kept going to Egypt and, and getting their help and going to other nations around them to secure protection. And so we see here in these verses that when this judgment came upon them, they were looking to their allies rather than looking to their God. They looked to the nations around them for security and protection. But there's another one. So not only were they looking to their own might and strength and, and looking to the allies for protection, they also were looking to someone else. Look at verse 20. Here's what it says. Our king, the Lord's anointed, the very life of our nation was caught in their snares. We had thought that his shadow would protect us against any nation on earth. Do you see that? So Israel had actually placed their hope in their king. Now we know why that would be. God had promised that they would always have a king on the throne. But we've got to remember what these kings were like. That king after king after king was corrupt. There was a couple of good ones thrown in there, but we know at the time of this judgment, Jehoiakim, who was the king, he was a terrible king. He was an evil king. But the Jewish people, the Israelites, were putting their faith in the corrupt king rather than God. And so we see a nation here trusting in their walls for security, other nations to rescue them and their corrupt leadership. But what I want us to see is that ultimately these sins outwardly don't look that bad. Some of the sins Israel were committing were obviously bad, but some of them, they didn't look outwardly bad. You know, making deals with other nations wasn't completely bad. Trusting in your king wasn't bad. Believing that you had secure walls wasn't necessarily bad. But underneath, in their hearts, was where the problem really lied. And you know, this is not all we know about Israel's Sin, just jumping outside of Lamentations again to Jeremiah, where we get a much more detailed picture of Israel's situation. We know that right up to this judgment, that Israel kept this religious shell. That, that they actually went and did the Sabbath. 
They prayed. They celebrated their festivals. They brought sacrifices to God, which led God to say such extreme things in Isaiah chapter 1 that he didn't want their sacrifices anymore, that he hated their festivals. You see, they kept this religious shell. And you see, this is why sin is so deceptive. And this is where it went wrong for Israel. And I hope you can see why. You see, Israel had exchanged a life-giving relationship with God and were finding their satisfaction in other things while believing that they could keep God happy by keeping up their religious routines. This is why sin is so deceptive. They thought everything was okay because they kept this religious shell Why their hearts were, had gone after false gods. Sin will try and make us to focus on our outward works and goodness and forget that God actually wants our whole hearts to be dependent upon him. And this is why I love that description in Jeremiah chapter 1 about what sin is. It's turning away from the living water, the only one who can satisfy our hearts, the one we're supposed to look to for our joy, satisfaction, hope, security. And it's turning to other things that can never satisfy And you know, once again, this remains true for us. Sin is deceptive. It's deceitful. And I think as Christians, we run into the same danger today. To focus so much on our outward actions. To forget that God wants our hearts. To be tempted to think that sin is actually just committing an act rather than having a heart that's becoming dull to God and searching for other things. And this leads to all sorts of problems like having sin preferences and, and not looking at really what is really going on in our hearts. Let me give an example of this. You see, sin can be just as rampant in a, in a marriage where... The husband and wife are constantly fighting, constantly having issues. And in a marriage, that looks relatively okay from the outside. Let me explain. So in in one particular marriage, the husband or the wife may have made their kids their idol. They may be looking to their kids for their hope and satisfaction. Or perhaps they're looking to their job and their success and their fulfillment or their money And when those things are idols, they create all sorts of arguments and issues and problems within their marriage. And we see that and we go, that's obviously sinful. But you see, sin is deceitful. And and so another marriage, the husband or the wife may have put their hope in each other. They may have made each other their idols. And so they're serving and, and just trying to keep the peace and keep the other person happy. And that may look fine on the outside, but really there's no difference between the sinfulness in both of those situations. Just the idols are different. And we see this all the time. We need to be reminded that sin is anything that we are looking to 
and receiving our hope and fulfillment and satisfaction more than God. And our hearts, even as Christians, are so good at this, so good at valuing and loving things more than we really should. And so here's the question for us, church, and the reminder, and I'm included in this. I've been thinking long and hard about this this week. Have our hearts began to turn and find our hope and fulfillment in things other than God? Have your hearts begun to become dull towards God, dull towards the gospel? And you've started to find fulfillment and satisfaction in other things. And the challenge is, it can be anything. You know, it could be um, things that are obviously bad and things that obviously aren't bad. It could be family. It could be a healthy lifestyle or an unhealthy lifestyle. It could be food or entertainment. It could be pornography or just TV. It could be career or money or success or even serving in church and church itself. Any of these things can replace God as the place we're looking for our security, our hope, and our satisfaction. We must be weary of these things. We're to look to God and Him alone for our strength and hope. And so be wary, church, of your own hearts. What are you looking to are you just keeping that exterior religious shell like the Israelites are doing? Just going through the motions, coming to church, making sure you tick those boxes while all the while your hearts are focused and fixed on other things. And ultimately, this is why judgment came upon Israel, because their hearts were far from God, even though they were doing some of the right things. What's going on in your hearts? Well, let's move on to our final point. Now, I realize that that's a pretty heavy start to this message, but I promise that this next point is going to be much more hopeful because there is some amazing hope in chapter 4. So let's read the last few verses because, again, the text shifts in quite a big way here in the end of this chapter. So looking at verse 21 with me. Verse 21. Are you rejoicing in the land of Uz, O people of Edom? But you too must drink from the cup of the Lord's anger. You too will be stripped naked in your drunkenness. O beautiful Jerusalem, your punishment will end. You will soon return from exile. But Edom, your punishment is just beginning. Soon your many sins will be exposed. So it may not be obvious to you when you read it like that, but there is so much hope in these verses for the nation of Israel. It starts out by talking about, is Edom, or the land of Uz, rejoicing before? Are they rejoicing? And so what does this mean? I'm guessing most of you don't just click and go, oh, Edom, I know what that means. Well, Edom actually goes right back in the Bible as one of Israel's oldest enemies, it goes right back to Esau. Now, Esau and Jacob, we all remember that story, right? Esau, how he sold his birthright, uh, and Jacob and him had all this 
struggle and enmity between one another. Well, essentially what happened was that didn't change. Esau's descendants became uh, basically Israel's enemies, trying to bring about their destruction all throughout history. Right up to this point where Babylon came upon Israel. And what took place is Edom actually joined forces with Babylon in an effort to bring about their ruin. And so it's like the poets going, are you rejoicing, Edom? Because you would be. You're the ones who have wanted our destruction for such a long time. And really in this text, we want to see that not it's not so much about Edom, but it represents God's enemies, God's people's enemies rejoicing at their downfall. And then this final verse shows so much hope. Let's read it again. O beautiful Jerusalem, your punishment will end. You will soon return from exile, but Edom... Your punishment is just beginning. Soon your many sins will be exposed. Now we need to understand the hope behind these verses. If chapter 3 wins the award for the most hopeful verses in Lamentation, this is right on its heels because it actually says so clearly that there is an end point to this punishment and that soon the people are going to return from exile. They are going to be restored despite the sin that has taken place. And so what we need to see here is in the midst of this terrible situation that God promises them that there will be restoration. They will return from exile. And that brings us to our final point, restoration from sin. See, what I want us to see here is that sin does not have the final word for the people of God. God's enemies are actually the one who will receive the final and lasting judgment. We see that in the verses, right? Edom's punishment is just beginning. And, and ultimately, that's what occurred in history. Israel were taken back to their land, and Babylon and Edom, their nations were destroyed and everlastingly destroyed. Sin does not have the final word for God's people, but for God's enemies, their destruction will be permanent. These were such hope-filled verses for Israel that despite their exile, they would come back home. It wasn't going to last forever. And for Israel, this meant coming back into the land with a changed heart and a renewed hope. But what I want us to see ultimately is that this is a part of a much bigger story that's going on. Because you see, the same God that deals with the nation of Israel and has mercy upon them is the same God who deals with us. And yes, you know, Israel was exiled here, but really the story of the Bible is that there was an exile much earlier than this that really told the story of humanity. You see, Adam and Eve were created by God, perfect, sinless, and they rejected God, decided to trust in other things for their hope and satisfaction. And what happened? They were exiled out of the Garden of Eden. They were told to leave from God's presence. But you see, this is the story of humanity. We have all been exiled 
We've all been taken from God's presence because of our sin. And yet, God in his mercy sends Jesus to take upon himself our sinfulness, our deliberate disobedience, our deliberate saying, God, we don't want you, we want other things. We want the stuff you've created to give us, what only you can give us. Jesus takes that upon himself, and because of his work on the cross and his resurrection, it means that those who put their faith in him, God's people, sin will not have the final word for them. What an incredible picture this chapter gives us of the destructiveness of sin, the deceitfulness of sin, and yet, despite that, God's promise of restoration, a restoration that we have the full picture of through Jesus Christ. And so what do we take from all of this, church? Well, I think the first thing we need to just remember is to, is to be reminded of that sin always leads to destruction and ruin. That we need to examine our hearts and to see if they're things that are taking the place of God in our lives. To be constantly examining our hearts, making sure that they are delighting in God and we're not trying to just put a religious cover on ourselves. But perhaps today you also might be feeling like Israel in this text. You might be, have seen your sin. You might have seen how far you've fallen and you might be feeling hopeless. Well, the remedy for both is the same. And it's Jesus Christ. We need to turn to Jesus Christ to forsake those things that we've been running to and to let our hearts be satisfied with him. And perhaps today... You're watching this and you've never done that. You thought sin was just about swearing or not going to church rather than actually your heart being given over to things that can never satisfy. Well, let me encourage you. Your heart was actually made to be worshipping God. The invitation stands that Jesus says that anyone who can come to him to repent of those things you're turning to and to look to Jesus. And you can do that today. Well, I want to finish church by reading a psalm that displays very clearly the life that God wants us to have as individual Christians and as a community. This is the heart he wants us to have. And so what I want to do is I'm going to read this psalm to you and I just want you to stop, maybe close your eyes, and focus on these words and pray that God will give you this heart. That God will give you these desires because ultimately it's only from him that we can. And so let me read this psalm as we finish. It's Psalm 63. Just reflect on these words and pray that God will give you this heart. Psalm 63 says this. O oh God, you are my God. I earnestly search for you. My soul thirsts for you. My whole body longs for you in this parched and weary land where there is no water. I have seen you in your sanctuary and gazed upon your power and glory. Your unfailing love is better than life itself. How I praise you. I will praise you as long as I live, lifting up my hands to you in prayer. You satisfy me more than the richest feasts. 
I will praise you with songs of joy. I lie awake thinking of you, meditating on you through the night because you are my helper. I sing for joy in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you. Your strong right hand holds me securely. May God give us hearts like this. Amen. Thanks, everyone.